This morning in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 18 through 25, and then focusing our attention especially upon verse 21. In your pew Bible, uh, you can find this reference on page 1111. As we turn there, we are reminded that what we have before us is the inspired Word of God that we believe is inerrant and infallible, that is, there are no errors, and it is absolutely true in all that it reveals, especially uh, concerning the historical event uh, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we consider this morning as we read from Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, Lord, through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, underneath the providence of our Lord, what we anticipate doing this morning is beginning an Advent series of sermons. And we want to remind ourselves that, first of all, the word Advent simply means the arrival of a notable person. The arrival of a notable person. And our plan is, after this morning, in a general survey of the purpose of the arrival of the notable person of Jesus Christ, in the next few weeks to consider some of the songs that the saints of God sang to the Lord upon the announcement of the Advent or the coming arrival of the notable person of Jesus Christ. So, for example, uh, the song of Zechariah and the song of Mary and then also the song of the angels in the heavenly realm as they demonstrate to us the appropriate way to respond to the Advent or the coming of the notable person. Uh, but I also want to begin this morning by emphasizing that there is something unique, something absolutely unique about this Advent. There have been perhaps many notable persons who have arrived on the scenes of human history. You can think perhaps of some of the great pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, you can think of some of the leaders in the European political uh, climate throughout the Middle Ages. You can think of kings who were great. You can think of princes uh, who were mighty. In our own more current uh, modern history, you can think of presidents uh, that had an unusual influence upon the development of our nation. You can think of other individuals 
uh, who are very influential when it comes to culture, uh, even developing uh, and progressing certain movements. But we want to underscore this morning a truth that we as a Christian church must always bear in mind, that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely unique and far transcends, that is, is far above and beyond the importance of any other person who has ever arrived in human history. And we want to consider this morning why that is. Why is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so unique in its importance? And I would submit to you that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is unique because of who it is that comes and also why it is that He comes. And so our basic premise is that the arrival of Jesus Christ into human history is a unique event of utmost significance largely in part because of who He is and why He comes. And that points us back to the words of our text in verse 21. And she, that is Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And so in the time allotted us this morning, let us consider together the name of the Savior, Noticing, first of all, that the name of the Savior reveals the nature of the salvation. And then secondly, the name of the Savior reveals the people of the salvation. And then thirdly, the name of the Savior reveals the certainty of the salvation. You shall call his name Jesus. Uh, Thus Joseph and also Mary are instructed in response to this supernatural event of the conception of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ underneath the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And now, of course, there is a wealth of material contained in that statement, and time does not afford us the opportunity to explore it further. But notice that this event is a supernatural event. The conception of the human nature of Jesus Christ did not occur by the will of man but occurred by the miraculous working of the power of God. And so the Christian faith is committed from the outset to the belief in the supernatural. But that's not a problem for the Christian. Because the Christian is a person who understands the omnipotence of the Lord God Almighty. And so although perhaps some liberals and scoffers would mock our belief in the supernatural conception And especially young people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of believing in the supernatural conception of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's nothing for God to cause this conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so His name shall be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Notice underneath the first point, the nature of the salvation, that it is a sovereign salvation and that it is a redemptive salvation. By sovereign, we have this understanding, and we often emphasize this truth, and we do so because we find it woven all throughout the testimony of Holy Scripture, and also because this is the great comfort of the Christian church 
And this is the great reason why we praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because of the sovereign work. And that is the idea that God is the omnipotent one with all power, and that He rules over everything. And that's why it's so clear you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save. Notice the emphasis is not upon what Mary will do. It's not upon what Joseph will do. And so also the emphasis in the Christian church has to be not upon what we will do. Humanity is turned in upon itself and is so often consumed with self, and it also applies to you and to me if we're honest. So often we're quick to think about ourselves and what we hope to do and what we plan to do and what we think we can do. But every time we take the name of our Lord and Savior upon our lips, Jesus, we ought to be reminded not of what we are to do, but rather what He has done. And this glorious truth is also represented for us in the Lord's Supper. For what do we do? It is not our body that is broken for the forgiveness of sins. It is not our blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. We come with empty hands and we receive freely these visible signs and seals of the work which He has accomplished. And perhaps these words speak to a heart that is a bit burdened this morning, reflecting upon your own shortcomings, your own failings. May I lovingly ask you, are your eyes turned too much upon yourself? If so, turn them back upon your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because salvation is a sovereign salvation. It is not that humanity climbs back into the heavens to find God, but rather that God in the person of Jesus Christ comes down. And He redeems. It's a sovereign, redemptive salvation. By redemptive, we mean that salvation is a setting of a person free from the power and from the penalty and from the presence of sin. And I want to be very clear because there's so much misunderstanding about this basic simple truth. If you had to fill in the blanks, boys and girls, and maybe you get quizzes and tests and your schooling and you have uh, to fill in the blanks. Fill in the missing word. If we gave you a sentence, Jesus saves us from fill in the blank. The word that belongs in the blank, according to Matthew 1, verse 21, is sins. Now, that's not perhaps a popular teaching in our day, but we've never professed to desire to be popular. We desire to be biblical. And we understand then that the Christian gospel emphasizes a sovereign, redemptive salvation, especially in this context, from the penalty of our sins, by the way of the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Your, my, our fundamental problem is sin and the alienation that it brings. But thanks be to God that that fundamental problem has been definitively dealt with once and for all at the cross, where there was the provision for the forgiveness, the cancellation of the guilt of sins, 
And so as you come into the sanctuary this morning to worship, no doubt your conscience testifies that you have fallen short in many ways. But I trust that your conscience also testifies that you have the forgiveness of sins, the blood of Jesus Christ. So this salvation is a sovereign, redemptive salvation. He saves from sins. But notice in our second point, the people of the salvation. He will save His people. Now you could immediately begin to understand that this supports the doctrine of a limited atonement or a definite atonement or a particular atonement that Jesus Christ suffers and dies and goes through all of the steps of humiliation and exaltation according to the design of eternal election for certain particular persons who have been elected by God's sovereign grace. But notice in this context, the emphasis is upon a particular covenantal people, His people. So there are in the mass of humanity certain individuals who are given unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not universal in the sense of every single human being receives the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is clear that many Many a person lives and dies underneath the guilt of their sins, not having the forgiveness of their sins. But the Bible is also clear that there are a unique group of individual persons who have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ and that He, that is Jesus Christ, represents them as their mediator so that they belong to Him. And He in this federal representation, takes upon himself all of the obligations. So a particular covenantal people are the people of salvation. And his body is broken, not for all, but for his people. And his blood is shed, not for all, but for his people. And we see this also in the high priestly prayer in John 17. In that high priestly prayer, Jesus Christ does not make intercession for every single member of the human race, but He prays for those who have been given unto Him. Well, when were they given unto Him? In election. As we've considered in recent weeks in Ephesians 2. And, and what a wonder this is. And, and this wonder, when it's properly appreciated by us, ought to create within our hearts a humble confidence. Not an arrogant pride, but a humble confidence that at the very essence of our identity as the people of God is just that, that we belong to Jesus Christ. That there is this union that is the very foundation of all salvation. And this also is symbolized as we receive the elements. So, those of us who exercise faith in a mature way, we will take the bread. And what will we do with the bread? Not put it in our pocket and take it home. Not just look at it, observe it, and place it back in the tray. We'll take it and we'll eat of it. Symbolizing this vital, life-giving union 
that we belong through faith to Jesus Christ. And what will we do with the wine? Again, not just observe it with our eyes, although we do do that. Not just place it back in the tray, but rather we will drink. Again, figuratively symbolizing this vital connection, this vital relation that Jesus Christ is ours and we are His. He will save His people. Now I know from Scripture and also from experience, and you will also know this truth, that the Christian life is not always the easiest life. There can be burdens, there can be disappointments, there can be trials, there can be doubts, there can be fears, there can be anxieties. But in the context of all of those realities, this morning, Christian, I would just encourage you to pause and reflect upon this truth, His people. That by faith you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. He will save His people from their sins. A sovereign, redemptive salvation of a particular covenantal people that is absolutely certain that's our third point, the certainty of the salvation. Uh, you no doubt know by now that I find it fascinating sometimes to look at one particular word in a text, not to the exclusion of the other words, of course. We look at these words in their context, but for this third point, I want to draw your attention to one little word, will. Will. It's not some uncertain possibility, this salvation. But it's an absolute certainty. It's not stated He will attempt to save His people. He will try to save His people. It's not He will do the best He can to save His people. He will. And when you see that word will, this morning, at least, I want you to see in the backdrop three words in the English, that is, one word in the Greek. The three words are this, it is finished. So the statement, he will save his people from their sins, behind that word will, I want you to read, it is finished. And I trust you know where those words are found. They're found on the lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. When he echoes this prophecy, he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus Christ, having accomplished all that is necessary for salvation, triumphantly, definitively, authoritatively says, it is finished. Well, what is finished? The accomplishment of salvation. The redemption of His people. The atoning sacrifice. And the administration of the Lord's Supper echoes that declaration, it is finished. When you see the bread broken, think, it is finished. 
He will save His people from their sins. And when you see the wine poured out, echo to your own soul, indeed, it is finished. He will save His people from their sins. Now, I know you could say, well, we still find ourselves in the midst of the church militant. And that, of course, is true, but that in no way calls into question the absolute certainty of our salvation. And now the full experience of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. But allow me also to, in closing, issue a call to repentance and faith, because I do not know absolutely the condition of the hearts of everyone who hears these words. It is finished for His people. And who are His people? Yes, those who have been given unto Him from all of eternity. But those, because they have been given unto Him, exercise faith and repentance. And so as we have attempted to speak about the arrival of the most notable person in human history, Jesus Christ. And as we have emphasized the sovereign, redemptive salvation of a particular covenantal people that is certain because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is also the closing exhortation earnestly given, Dear hearer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a wonderful mystery we have attempted briefly to look into this morning. The purpose of the very incarnation itself. We ask that you would give us hearts of understanding and hearts also of faith. Not only as we hear the word preached, but also as we now receive the word through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is not a different Christ that we receive in the sacrament than what we receive in the preaching of the Word, but it is a different manner in which we receive Him. And so, Father, we pray that You would bless to the encouragement of Your people both the preaching of the Word and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For Jesus' sake, amen.